Hello and welcome to I Think You're Interesting. I'm Todd Vanderwerf, the I, and I Think You're Interesting. Today our guest is Desmond Borges. He's one of the stars of FXX's You're the Worst. I had to drive over here this morning. I had to leave my apartment at 6.15 in the morning. And last night, of course, the fire alarms went off throughout my apartment complex. They were blaring loudly. There were lights flashing. As I was laying there thinking about that, I was thinking about the character that Desmond plays on You're the Worst. His name is Edgar. And I was thinking about how he functions in sort of the same way. He's this hes this alarm bell for all of the other characters on the show who are very self-centered, who are often very caught up in their own stuff, who are often not looking around at each other and, and not looking around to see that their friend Edgar, who's, who's this... Uh, this vet who has some issues with combat PTSD. They're not looking at him to sort of see, you know, all of the warning bells going off in their own life. And to me, it was like this this sort of weird moment of serendipity to think about, you know, this is how a lot of people, this is how a lot of people we see around us are. You, you see them, but you don't really hear the warning bells they're sending off. You don't really listen to the alarm, sometimes until it's too late. Um, so I thought it would be great to get Desmond in here and talk about his character and sort of talk about the world we're in right now. Desmond, it's great to have you here. Oh, thank you for having me. There's not a lot of rehearsal time in, in film and TV, but there was an episode of You're the Worst this season that I imagine took more rehearsal than usual, mm. which is, uh, if you haven't seen this season, it's set at a wedding and it's it's primarily done, it seems to be done in one take. So the camera is always moving around the room and characters are moving in and in front of it and out of the way and sort of having conversations. Uh, and so it doesn't have traditional editing like you'd expect. It's sort of like the film uh, Birdman, if you've seen that. And I'm wondering, can you tell me a little bit about, you know, filming that episode and what the process was for that? Because it looks like it was incredibly complex. Oh, it was it, it, it was amazing. It was thrilling. And for a lot of us who had done theater before and haven't done theater in a while, it was kind of really uh, a, a nice treat to take what we what we love about doing theater and, and bring and bridge it over into the film world. But yeah, we did one 11 page long take and then we did another. I think it was a nine and a half or 10 page long take um, there set at the wedding. And uh, Wendy Stansler, who was directing the episode, and, and Stephen Falk, who's our creator and showrunner, who's on set with us, you know, every day. Um, they just wanted to make sure that we were that, that we were even more prepared than we normally are, because if you mess up, there is no stopping and kind of taking that again. Mm-hmm. Um, we just have to keep on, you know, busting through. And we don't improvise a whole lot on the show. So, you know, we want to tell the story that Stephen wants us to tell, because we believe in Stephen and we believe in his story and this and, and the the world that we're molding. So everyone was like really, really, really honed in. And uh, we came in the night before we started shooting. We did a table read of the episode, and we haven't done a table read of an episode since the pilot. We just <laughs> we don't do that. FX doesn't make us do that, um, and and you know it's really great. I mean, we all talk about the episodes, you know, off camera all the time, especially since because we block shoot. We do four to five episodes at a time. So mm. we're you know when we're not shooting, we're always just kind of talking through the process of like, well, how does this connect with what's happening in episode twelve, and is this kind of the you know the 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 jumping off point for eventually what's going to happen, you know, in the season finale in episode 13. And then we'll have those discussions together and with Steven and the writers and, 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 uh, Wendy, who was directing us during that block. And so 
we came in, we did the read through and uh, we came in the next morning and we rehearsed the first 11 pages for three and a half hours. Hmm. Then they lit it and we rehearsed it some more. And then we got off, uh, I don't know, five or six takes. And then we went to lunch and then we came back and I think we did another four or five takes and then that was it. And Hmm. that first 11 pages was done. And then we started rehearsing uh, the second nine and a half, ten page uh, um, uh, cut that was happening. And we rehearsed that. And then we came back the following morning and rehearsed it a little bit more. And then we knocked that out in like, I don't know, eight, nine, ten takes again. Was there something exciting about kind of bringing that feel of theater to TV, that feel of, um, you know, if I screw this up, like everything is ruined. Yeah. I mean, that's the most exciting part of theater that you never really know what's going to happen. And most of the time, you know, once you do it for long enough, you realize that unless you're doing something like Rent or In the Heights or Hamilton, um, they, the, the audience really doesn't know when you fuck up. So as long as you keep on going and you stay in the moment, not only is it exceptionally exhilarating for the actors who are on stage, because for the first time you're you're hearing these lines or in this moment and it's new again. And, you know, that's always kind of, you know, the trap with theaters, always trying to find a way to make it new because for the – For the most part, that audience that night is seeing it for their first and probably only time. So you want to give them as honed in and and, and real story as possible. I mean, not that you don't always want to do that, but sometimes when you're doing eight shows a week and you got two on Saturday and two on Sunday, by the time you get to that second one on Sunday, it's kind of like, oh, man, let's just, you know, muster up everything we, we, we can to kind of give this audience what they paid for. So it was nice. It, it was just kind of like a, a mad dash of fun. Yeah, yeah. For the listeners who obviously don't know this because of the magic of recording, uh, Desmond is in New York and I'm in Los Angeles. And Desmond, if the other stuff I've seen you in has been primarily like New York filmed or New York shot. Mm-hmm. Um, and yet You're the Worst is kind of the quintessential Los Angeles show at this moment. You know, it even kind of looks like L.A. It has that sort of uh, too sunny glow on everything that makes everything <laughs> sort of look like it's hungover. Um, and uh, I'm sort of wondering, as someone who's not, I guess, an L.A. person, like, has You're the Worst made you fall in love a little bit more with L.A., or were you always an L.A. fan? Um, I, you know, to be quite honest, I'm, I'm, I'm not the hugest L.A. fan. Um, I love the state of California. Uh, I love... Almost everything outside of L.A., but because I grew up in Chicago and I've lived in New York for such a long period of time, uh, community is 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 such a large part of my fabric as just as a human. And I feel like there's a real lack of community overall within Los Angeles. Yes, you have your certain pockets of friends that are your community, but as a city, it isn't set up to have community. You know, it's set up basically so that everyone is driving or texting and talking on their cell phone and putting on their makeup while they're operating a vehicle at the same time. (laughs) And it's inherently selfish in the best of ways and in the worst of ways. You know, I always joke about I go hiking a lot while I'm there because I don't really get the opportunity to do that all that much in New York, um, um, if at all. But um, I, I love it. I absolutely love being one with nature and being there. But, you know, I always joke that if we were on a trail and someone got bit by a snake, that everyone would pick up their dog first to make sure that they were okay before they actually helped the person who was bit by the snake. 
<laughs> Probably true. <laughs> yeah, and, and you know, I mean, not that there aren't great things about LA because one of the things that I've really discovered about LA because I'm a huge foodie is just how great the food scene is there and becoming there in Los Angeles and specifically through the show because we shoot East Side primarily, Silver Lake, Echo Park, Mount Washington, uh, Highland Park, uh, South Pass, um, Eagle Rock. You know, I've I found these little pockets and these little places which are kind of outside of L.A. proper, I would say, um, that I've really started to have crushes on. So, you know, along mm. the way, because of where we shoot and the places we shoot within the show, I feel like my heart is warmed up more to certain sections of Los Angeles. Yeah, I've always sort of felt like L.A. is, you know, I, I love New York. Like I, when I was in high school, I wanted to move to New York and somehow I ended up out here. Uh, but as I've lived here many years, I sort of feel like L.A. is a bunch of small towns piled on top of each other. Um, and like there's not a lot of connection between them. But if you can like find yourself in one of those small towns, then you can sort of feel like you have a neighborhood in a place. But that's very difficult because of the way the city's set up. Um, what, what's your like? What's your secret hidden dining recommendation in Los Angeles that maybe people don't know about? Oh, oh, and by far my 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 favorite place. And I don't know how hidden this is, but uh, Philippe Yukvidin and I, who is one of the writers on the show, he introduced me to Slippery Shrimp in downtown oh, wow. at Yang Chow. And if you have not been there. Go there, run there as fast as you can, and get that slippery shrimp because it is amazeballs. I will. I will. Um, so you mentioned earlier Edgar. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, he deals with PTSD. Uh, season three really delved into that subject area, and there was there was a whole episode told from Edgar's point of view, which was, I think, one of, one of the better episodes the show's ever done. And I, I know from having talked to you in the past that you, you did some research, you've talked to some vets, you've sort of delved into that area, but I'm, I'm wondering, like, as you got deeper into it in season three, like, what was your process there? How did you how did you sort of push even further into that area? Yeah, well, it, you know, interestingly enough, my wife and I were expecting our first child right in and around while we were shooting that episode. Um, you know, it was exceptionally difficult going to work, even though I love going to work. Like, I absolutely love, love, love being there. But, but every time we yelled cut, I was checking in with her. Um, and figuring out what was happening. And then after he was born, because literally he was born in and around while we were shooting that episode, that was really, really painful for me. And just kind of the struggle of wanting to be two people at the same time and being in two places at the same time and, and yearning to, you know, uh, was, was an interesting juxtaposition and dichotomy to what was going on with, with Edgar and the storyline because whenever we're dealing with any sort of mental health issue, but specifically with combat PTSD, um, a lot of the vets that I've spoken to and the things that I've read about is that, you know, they're, they have a very distinct memory of what they were like before that traumatic experience and event happened. Mm. And they're desperately trying to find a way to get back as closely to that as they possibly can while they're transitioning into, you know, their every normal day civilian lifestyle that they don't recognize or understand how to fucking be in at this point. Mm -hmm. So while they know, statistically speaking, that it's almost impossible that they're going to be 100 percent of who they were before, you know, the, the event happened, they are doing everything they can and scrambling in every which way that they possibly can and searching every every avenue in order to find that. And I feel like I was kind of going through the same thing in a very, very, very 
different set of circumstances, of course, um, mm. because the first time saying bye to my son was probably the hardest goodbye that I've ever had in my life. And even though I wasn't leaving for that long, I just felt like I, like there was this other person who was there and I wanted to be that guy, but I had to be this guy for a little while. And um, it turned out to be extremely fruitful and useful for what we were doing. You know, one of the things I hear from, from, from a lot of the uh, artists that I admire and respect and that have worked with who, who, who have children is, is that they say when you, when you do that there's this new channel of, of emotion that you're able to tap into on a regular basis. And um, I'm, I'm, I feel very lucky mm. that I now get to be a part of that group. You mentioned, as you've talked to vets who have experienced combat PTSD, they have this memory of who they were before that. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering, when we see Edgar on the show, we've only seen him after his military career is over. Right. Uh, and I'm wondering, do you have a feeling of who Edgar was before this? Like, do you have that in your head, sort of that that true north? Yeah, you know, I, I, I always kind of imagine him being a sort of um, idealistic dreamer that falls in line very quickly and very easily because he's always um, ready and, and, and willing to uh, please everyone mm -hmm. in every sense. And we see a lot of that Edgar now, but I think there was more of it then. Um, and, and because he comes from a place where he doesn't have a lot of uh, initial internal confidence going on, um, I, you know, I, I, I could, I, I have a, it's, it's hard to explain, but I have a very vivid visual image of what I think scrawny little 18 to 25 year old Edgar was like going through two tours in Iraq. You know, mm. um, I think we see parts of it here, you know, the way that he lets Jimmy and Gretchen and Lindsay treat him sometimes the way he, uh, you know, up until a point he was letting the VA treat treat him, you know, I think now we finally are embarking on an Edgar who is ready to say, hey, I'm a person, listen to me, shut the fuck up, I'm, I'm here, like I'm real, like you have to help me, like I need help, and if you're not going to help me, I'm going to do everything I can to help myself, whereas like younger Edgar would have never dreamed of saying that to them. He just would have kept on falling in line and, and kind of being bright-eyed and, and, op and, you know, uh, hopelessly optimistic. Um, and while it being extremely fiercely loyal, which is, I think, the through line that we see from Edgar all the way through, even as a young guy, I think he was fiercely loyal. And I, and, and I think that's probably one trait that has not wavered at all, um, you know, throughout the years pre-post, yeah. um, you know, Iraq. Hmm. Like you say, you've talked to some some vets, and it seemed, you know, a lot of the time, um, especially with this most recent war, it, it kind of took place eventually sort of off the front pages, off, off TV. Like it was happening, and we knew it was happening, but if you didn't immediately know someone who was over there, you maybe didn't think about it so often. And I'm wondering what in, in sort of your time that you've been talking to and meeting with these people and, and learning about them, like, what have you been most struck by? What have you taken away emotionally sort of from those those meetings of, of what these these men and women are dealing with? It's definitely the, the one experience in time that I spoke to a vet that influenced me and hit me the most. And it was between shooting the pilot and when we got picked up and started shooting season one, 
Um, Stephen had a vet come in and he so graciously told us his entire life story. Um, and it was going to war and coming back and then going back for another tour and, and the effects of combat PTSD and how it's really, really like a roller coaster more than anything else. There's crazy, crazy highs and exceptionally dark lows and, um, how, you know, it, every day seemed like there was going to be some great breakthrough and then it just kind of turned to be a breakthrough, but not necessarily to, to the level that he expected of himself. And so there was always a lot of inner struggle happening with challenging himself, which, which I found to be extremely interesting. But I think the thing that probably hit me the most was, um, after the incident where, um, during the, the dark night when that person came in and shot up the movie theater, it freaked him out so bad. Um, and, and he was in an exceptionally bright place within his PTSD at the time that he started carrying a service weapon around again. And it wasn't to inflict violence or pain on anybody else. He just wanted someone to see that on him so that they would beat the hurt out of him. Hmm. And no one... You know, when whenever I'm speaking to, to, to anyone who's dealt in anything remotely close to a situation like that, I never push. I'm just a sponge. I'll listen. I'm a shoulder to cry on. I'm an ear to hear you like that. Like, that's it. But I broke down and I had to mute my phone for a minute because I had never heard anyone say that before. And I've never known anyone who has felt that alone or that small or that helpless that they that they physically put a gun on them so that someone would see it to beat the hurt out of them because they were hurting so much. And and I, and I knew with the lovely and um, hopelessly romantic and optimistic Edgar that we were seeing that, that there could be this guy underneath all of that that just wanted the hurt to be beat out of him. Mm. And first two seasons we didn't get to see a lot of that but I started just thinking about that conversation a lot and the way that it the way that it affected me and I I was able to just kind of use sense memory and kind of continue to let that layer and bubble up season by season and then I think we finally got to see some of that come through this season when you take on something like that when you take on the responsibility of that portrayal of, of showing of showing the world a reflection of what that is like how do you how do you prepare yourself for that? How do you find a way into that that will sort of take the weight of that responsibility without it becoming crushing, I guess? Well, whenever you're dealing with any sort of issue that's a real issue that people deal with, you know, you, you, you want to tell the story A as truthfully as possible and B with as most with, with, with the most amount of respect that you possibly can give it. There's a lot of there, there, there's a lot of uh, uh, gravity and weight that you're dealing with at this point because for someone who is ethnically ambiguous like myself my my job and my goal is to always give voice to the voiceless and we're kind of hitting it twice here with Edgar because I'm I'm giving voice to the voiceless for little brown kids and and out there who don't normally get to see themselves on TV playing characters like I'm getting to play right now. But on top of it, I'm, I'm, I'm giving voice to a whole group of, 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 of people who, who never for the most part get to see anything of what they do told in the way that we're telling it. So I always really try to keep, keep that in mind that there, you, you know, you don't walk down the street 
and are like, ah, oh, that person has clinical depression. Ah, oh, that guy's suffering from PTSD. I found out in mm-hmm. season two that two of my friends' fathers, who I've known for almost 18 years now, suffer from PTSD. And I've never had one fucking iota of, of an idea that they were suffering from it. I try to remember moments like that. I keep that in the front of my mind. Like, what is it like to always be pushed to the side? Like, oh, here you go. Thank you for supporting our country. You've come back. We're going to throw you, um, we're going to have a fucking grill party for you, give you a steak, get you a beer. And then the next day I'm going to go on to my cushy fucking job and you're just going to get to, you know, try to fend for yourself again. Hmm. And while the VA is just scrambling at all times because they are underfunded and understaffed trying to make this transition easier for them there's just so many people who are who are dealing with you know difficulties in the transition and not enough people willing to help and i think ultimately it's our duty as people within the society to say like this is my fellow man this is my fellow woman it is my job to help them to the best of my ability and and i i i hope that with episodes like 22 that we at least get the conversation rolling. Mm-hmm. A, a lot of the stuff you're talking about, about pushing people to the side, you know, that that comes up with Edgar just more, more generally on the show because the other characters are often very cruel to him or they sort of take advantage of him or they they just assume he's going to be there for them. And, and certainly there were points in season three when they kind of were there for him when he needed them. But I'm wondering... You know, does that does that get to you? Does that get to you playing a guy who's who's kind of sometimes, you know, the the, the sponge soaking up everybody else's bitterness? Um, no, no. I mean, personally, does it? Do, uh, no, it doesn't get to me. It fuels the fire more, uh, especially mm. within my life. I've been an underdog my entire life, man. I've I've known from the very beginning that I'm not a guy who walks into a room and everyone turns their head and like, oh my God, who's that? Do you see that right there? Oh my God, that's Desmond. Like, no, I'm, I'm, I'm not, you know, I'm not the type of guy. I don't really care to be that type of guy, but I am the type of person that once you get to know me and spend some time with me, you look forward to the next interaction that we have together, or at least I hope that's the person that people perceive me as because that's the person that I want to be. And that's the type of life that I want to live. And those are the type of interactions that I want to have. So, you know, I feel actually very, very close with Edgar in that sense to have kind of people just kind of brush him off. You know, when I was 10 to 18, I was living in Houston, Texas, and I don't think there was anything more difficult in my life than those eight years. Um, Just because when I got there, I got constantly made fun of. I was a kid in Chicago with gecko MC Hammer pants and a Chicago Bears sweater on. And Mm -hmm. um, I talked different and I thought differently and and I danced a little differently. And, and, um, you know, it was... it was – I just wasn't readily very accepted there. And, um, you know, my, my father also uh, got diagnosed with colon cancer and passed away while I was there. And, 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 and during those darkest times, the majority of the friends that I thought I had gained along the time just kind of fucking forgot about me. It was like, oh, well, I don't want to be around him. Like whatever's happening in his life is a downer. And it's mm. like, yo, fuck you, man. Like, cool. I, under- I, I understand. I'm 15 years old. I see what we were like. I understand. Let's call a spade a spade. I'm just going to keep on moving forward. Like, I just won't waste my time with you. So when it comes when it comes to Edgar and when it comes to these issues of Edgar that we're kind of portraying, I mean, I, I, I have <laughs> that personal energy that I'm able to kind of put into it. But, you know, at the same time, 
I think one of the greatest things about playing Edgar, and I think one of the greatest things that I try to do in my life is I'm always trying to find the optimism in people, and I'm always trying to find the love in people first because deep down there's something about Jimmy and Edgar's relationship that he, he, he stays there. And even though Jimmy can be exceptionally cruel to him at times, there is a love there. And I think at some point it'll shine brighter than it previously has. Um, and I think Edgar knows that, and that's why he continues to stay. Yeah, yeah. What was when you were sort of uh, when you were in that adolescence? Was, was that when you sort of got interested in, in acting, or, or was that a thing that you've just always had an interest in? Um, you know, we have a lot of performers in my family. Most of them are musicians, though. Um, you, you know, very early on, like um, uh, some of my favorite movies as 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 a child. I'm talking about like four, five, six, seven, eight years old. Um, uh, Purple Rain. Coming to America, La Bamba, like this is sh- these are shit that I should not have been watching, <laughs> but I loved them so much, and um, um, uh, you know I used to run around with this half broken guitar that I found in an alley, and I would sing the entire Purple Rain album to anyone that would listen to me. So you know I I, I was always very interested in in telling stories from from early on, and and as I grew older, I, you know, I was always in school plays and things like that. And I, I, you know, it wasn't really until, um, before my father passed, he took me to New York to come see his father, my grandfather, who I I don't have an exceptionally great relationship with. He's kind of like a Puerto Rican who can't stay in one place for too long. He's got multiple wives and like 19 children. And those aren't really ideals that, uh, I, I I personally take two, but it's good to know where you come from. And so he was living in New York at the time, and he wanted to show us, you know, what it was like to be living in New York. So he took us to go see this one-man play called Freak by John Leguizamo, and it was the first time in my life that I saw someone on stage who not only looked like me and sounded like me and moved like me, but had relationships with his father specifically like I did. And and it like it blew my fucking mind because he was using, you know, hip hop and different sorts of media that I had never seen before. And he had a variety of characters that felt uh, grounded and energized and painfully real. And at the end of it, like I looked at my dad, I never seen him cry before. He had tears in his eyes. I hardly ever hung out with my grandfather. He had tears in his eyes. And I said to him, that's what I want to be when I grow up. That's what I want to do. And he said, you will, Poppy, you will. And it's it, it's it's amazing because it took me being in, in, in a situation that wasn't necessarily exactly a, a loving one at that time to find my passion and the direction that I wanted my life to be in. And then after he passed, I played a lot of baseball. I played a lot of basketball. I just stopped it, man. I started taking tap. tap dancing lessons and I started taking singing lessons and I got a commercial agent when I was in Houston, Texas. And I, I I just, I I was doing high school theater and trying to do as much as I could out of it. Um, and knew that, and, and, and knew that that was, that, that was my way. That, that was my way that I was going to give back. That was the way that I'm, that I felt most fulfilled, you know, and, and, and I didn't have to rely on anybody else to fulfill me in order to do it, you know, in order to, to be an artist or in order to tell stories, it, they can be self-generated. And, and John Leguizamo was, was, was the pivotal point and the inspiration for that. Who are, who are some of your other uh, acting, performing heroes who are people that you look to as you were 
getting into your career and, and maybe you still look to now? Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, you know, there's always the the De Niro's, the Pacino's, um, uh, the Dustin Hoffman's of the world. But, you know, you can't discredit people like <laughs> Eddie Murphy. Um, and 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 I say that with a laugh before because I just started thinking of coming to America because it, it was one of the most influential movies ever in my life. But, you know, he did something that very few people do, and that's transcending race. Like at some point, Eddie Murphy, for a long time, was the most famous person in the room, was the most popular person in the room. And it didn't matter what color his skin was. He just could tell stories and was funny as fuck. And everyone wanted to be on the Eddie Murphy bandwagon. And I feel like We've taken two steps forward and many steps back since then, you know, within within Hollywood, within the, you know, the world of storytelling. But he was a big influence for me. And then, you know, you've got you've got people like um, uh, Daniel Day-Lewis. And I would be ridiculously uh, uh, dumb if I didn't mention someone like Stanley Tucci, who I think is absolutely amazing. And you've got women like. Uh, Sally Field and, and, and Meryl Streep, who, uh, you know, are um, ridiculously celebrated, but rightfully so. Um, and, and they've embodied some of the, the, the strongest characters I've ever seen in film or television. You, um, you got the likes of uh, like Jim Carrey, which was probably one of the wildest experiences I've ever had after I was in New York. The first movie I was cast in from when I moved here was Mr. Popper's Penguins. And I was working with him for almost five and a half, six weeks. And I've, I, you know, at, at, at first it, it was, I was, I was pretty nervous going into it, but man, the guy is fucking brilliant. I've, hmm. and I've since then, I've never worked with someone that was as detailed oriented as he was, um, we would do 25 to 30 takes of everything and every five to seven takes we'd stop and we'd watch them and he'd start off really, 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 really small. Like I'm talking mm-hmm. about really small, like, like, you know, uh, very, very subtle, dramatic, dark sort of comedic sort of acting. And by the time we'd get to the 25th or 30th take, he'd be over the top Jim Carrey that like made him absolutely famous, you know, and being able to play off of that was amazing. I mean, it was it was like going to a whole nother, you know, acting conservatory in those four and a half, five weeks. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, ultimately, there's so many more and there's so many more that are that, that are coming up because, I, you know, I don't I don't uh, idol. I feels like a strong word, but influence is 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 really what speaks to me, you know, and like, I, you know, I think like right now people um Oh man, like th- those kids from Stranger Things might be mm. some of the best shit I've seen in a very long time. At least yeah. it was some of the most affecting work that I've seen happen to me personally while I was watching something, you know? Um, mm. And uh, like Tony Hale, I think he's probably the funniest person on television right now. You know, he's been in mm-hmm. arguably, what, two of the top 10 comedies of all time. So there, you know, I think, I, I, I think, you know, the influences are, are constantly evolving and you're always trying to, to um, find, find, find people that you connect with because uh, like I said, this, the, the, this can be, storytelling can be a very um, insular uh, uh, sort of lifestyle. Hmm. Yeah. We're, we're going to kind of head in toward the end here, but I, I do have a couple more for you. Sure. 
those of us in the criticism and arts world are still sort of wondering, you know, what is the role of art in Donald Trump's America? But if you think about it more generally, like whatever, what is the role of art anyway? Like, like what do you sort of see in a time when there's a lot of division, there's a lot of dissension in the country? Yeah. What do you see as as the role of, of television, of film, of theater? Again, this is like one of one of the areas where where it's our duty to remain constantly vocal, to continue to open people's eyes, to show through art life sort of imitations, what the possibilities are of that, the good ones and the bad ones. Um, I think it's our chance to prove that we don't want to be pigeonholed. We don't want to be put into a box. Um, and, and uh, you know, ultimately, no matter what, side you fall on or where you find yourself politically right now. I I think we're living in a tremendously scary environment. And and, and it's not because of what might possibly could happen. It's because of what has already happened, because of the the, the rhetoric in which he campaigned upon resonated so strongly with so many people in America. That's the scariest part to me. And as someone Mm. who, who devotes his time to wanting to give voice to the voiceless. It's very hard for me to stand behind giving voice to those who believe in the rhetoric he spewed so strongly. And I feel like that's going to be a very key portion of art to somehow convey their words because obviously they feel like they have not been listened to. Hmm. So it is our job as the storytellers to make sure that we're telling all sides of the story. And it's going to be, you know, it's it, it, it's going to be r- ridiculously difficult, you know, especially now we've been within the industry. We've been fighting so hard. You know, I mean, I know there was the Oscar so white thing that was going on, but we're in a new era of peak TV where we have probably some of the most brilliant storytellers being able to tell on so many different ty- so many different platforms where you know women are getting opportunities all people of color are getting opportunities and fucking rightfully so like it, it's it's been stagnant for so long not that people who aren't women and people who aren't people of color shouldn't have the opportunities but we're we're thankfully and luckily in an age in an area where there's just so many platforms that people are getting the opportunity to generate content that way. Um, and I, you know, ultimately I fear by the pigeonholing and the box putting, you know, that the misogynistic, <laughs> sexist, bigoted sort of rhetoric that was that was ran upon, I'm, I'm scared that we're going to fall back into me only being this or her only being that. Because at that point, then we're dealing with a whole whole nother side of the coin where we've had people who have been voiceless for so long now being told that they have to go back and 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 be voiceless again and that's another scary part of the uh of of the issue i don't know if i made i don't know if i made any sense during that i hope i did no absolutely how do you sort of keep giving voice to the voiceless at a time when others are trying to sort of shout them down i think my only way is in uh, content that I generate myself, which is something that I'm working on, um, uh, starting to write my own stories and hopefully being able to start 
selling them and producing them and telling stories from my point of view. So that's one avenue. And in the roles that I decide to go out for, you know, like I'm in a place where I can kind of say no to some things right now. There aren't other actors who have that opportunity and they have to put food on the table and clothes on their children. And I, I totally fucking get that. Um, and I've been there before. But, you know, I there, there was something, I don't know, a couple months ago, where I was asked, not I, I, I don't, I don't mind playing villainous. I don't, I, I actually really like playing villains. It's, it's, it's great, great fun. But I don't mind playing gangsters. I don't mind playing, you know, someone who's a drug dealer if they're a drug dealer who, who's well rounded and who has heart and who's helping further the story. But there was something I was asked to audition for where I was basically holding this guy and his wife up and. In order to get the guy to pay, I was supposed to put my gun in her vagina. Mm. And I just said no. Like, I actually kind of liked the writing a lot. But I'm not going to be that person who shows little brown kids that that shit's okay. And I know it's Mm. fictional. But there's somebody else out there who will feel like that is a story that they want to tell. And I'd like to give them that opportunity. Or there's, you know, times where... I get stuff that's like really overly stereotypical. And for one instance, it was a, a gay character that I was asked to go in for. And the writing was just, oh, man, like I feel like it was taking a whole genre of people and setting them back like 30, 40 years. And I just said, no, I'm I'm not going to I'm not going to do that, because if I go in there, I'm going to show them something different that they're not going to want, most likely. And I'm going to be mm-hmm. wasting everybody else's time. But there are people out there who feel like those are stories they need to tell. And I'd like to continue to give them the opportunity to do that. Whereas I'll just be a little bit more selective with, with which stories I decide to tell from this point forward. And finally, you've mentioned when we were talking about the, the one take episode, uh, the, the wedding episode that you, a lot of that was about staying in the moment. And you've yeah. talked a lot about, you know, not getting distracted by your iPhone, not getting distracted by this or that. I'm wondering what you do to stay in the moment, to stay open to life, to stay open to the possibilities around you? Eat donuts. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, no, no, you know, um, I. it's something that got joked about within this season, but mindfulness is a, um, is a, is, is, is a pretty amazing power if you're, if, if you're able to jump on board with it, you know, I mean, we, we live in an era where it's so, like you said, so easy to be (laughs) unfocused. There's just so many things going on. But when I'm on set, unless if we have something, you know, going on, or I need to have my phone on me in case my wife needs to get a hold of me, I turn my phone off, man. I try and I, 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 I try not to, I try my hardest not to be reading. I just, I want to be there. And jobs like this that I'm so hashtag blessed to be in are fleeting, man. I, you you know, there, there's so many gigs you go into where people don't love each other the way that we love each other and that we're like a family on this set. And I know that time's ticking. It's not going to run forever. So I want to soak it up as much as possible. And I really just try to implement that into my everyday life. I don't see everybody uh, all my friends as often as I do anymore. And, um, the moments that I, that I, that, that I do get to see them, I, I just, I really try to be there and be with them and listen and actually, actually really listen to people. It's funny. I guess I kind of learned this early on. My mom's a, a barber. And so I grew up in a barber shop and one of those like barber shops where was a whole bunch of like 
blue-haired ladies getting their perms done, you know, every day. Overall, what, what I gathered is that no one, they, they always felt like no one really listened to them. And so from very early on, I've just always tried to be the friend, the lover, the partner, the son, now the father of someone who like actually just sits and listens to them and gives people time. Because you want to know what? That article's still going to be on Twitter. That picture's still going to be there to like later. Um, my Cubbies still were going to win the World Series, whether or not I was actually watching it at that time. Like, it had not really nothing to do with me. And since it's on the Internet, it's always there, and we can always get back to it later. But the people that are in front of us are only there for a small period of time. So I just I, – I really try to remember that and just implement that in my everyday life, <laughs> and I'm not – amazing at it. I'm nowhere close to the level I want to be at it, but I feel like I'm getting better. Well, thank you so much for your time, Desmond. Uh, Everybody, go and watch You're the Worst. Uh, It's on Hulu, and other episodes are on FX now. Thank you again for your time, Desmond Borges. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me, man. Talk again soon. I Think You're Interesting is executive produced and hosted by Todd Vanderwerf. In case you hadn't guessed, that's me. The other folks who help make this podcast are the heads of Vox Podcasting, Marty Moe and Jackie Goldstein, sound designer Miles Yule, logo designers Victor Ware, Crystal Stevens and Georgia Cowley, production manager Alex Ulreich, production coordinator Paige Bethman. Our audio engineering and post-production is thanks to P3 Post, and we record at the Village Workspaces podcast studio in Santa Monica, California. I'll be back next week with another interview with someone from the world of arts and entertainment, someone I think is interesting. And until then, thank you very much.